Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to another episode of Crushing Cashflow. I'm your host, Andrew Shutsky, and with me today is Fernando Andalucci. We're about to talk self-storage, and we, we cover a lot of multifamily. We covered single-family, short-term, long-term rentals, even flips. I think it's the first time we've covered self-storage, so thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Fernando, and welcome to the yeah. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Andrew. And a quick background on him. He's got over 50 million in self-storage in just over three years, about 600,000 net rentable square feet and over 4,500 units. So quite a quite a geographic landscape there. So yeah. let's start off. Again, this is a, a relatively new topic for crushing cash flow. Why, mm-hmm. why self-storage? I and mean, there's a lot of options out there. Like I've just rattled off the top three before we talk about why why do you like self-storage so much? Yeah. And I, you know, this is kind of I fell upon it after dealing with issues with some of the other investment vehicles. So I started off my career wholesaling properties, and then that quickly went into flipping single family homes, buy and hold single family, then scaling up to buy and hold multifamily. And it was interesting because, you know, I read all the, all the books, right? Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they talk about passive income. And I was looking at my week and I was working like 70 hours on my passive income, right? I'm using air quotes. I was like, this doesn't feel very passive. And so I was looking through it. I'm like, what is the main, what is the main corollary amongst all these different investing techniques that I'm using that's causing the time to just explode? And it came down to just people. I'm just dealing with people. And so I figured out how do I remove that aspect from my investing? And that's when I came across self-storage and the, the little tagline I always like to use is no tenants, no trash, no toilets. Um, so when I got into self-storage, I, I already had a pretty sizable um, spread of multifamily and single family units. And after buying my first facility in 2018, I kind of saw the writing on the wall and just started selling all of my residential real estate, if you will, or habitation real estate is what I call it. That, so that encompasses both multifamily and single family anywhere where someone lives in your property, because then all the laws are you know, a little bit more tough. There's all these implied and expressed warranties of habitation. So, you know, when the furnace goes out in Chicago in, you know, February and it's a polar vortex, that's not something that you could say, oh, I'll get to it, you know, next week. That's something you got to drop literally everything you're doing right now and get that furnace either replaced or fixed because, you know, you have negative 10, negative 20 degree temperatures outside and that could cause um, a lot of liability for you as a landlord if someone were to get hurt or, you know, God forbid, die because of because of a lack of maintenance. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what about the competition aspect, right? I mean, there are, there's obviously a ton of people in single family, multifamily. What about, do, do you find yourself, you know, especially in today's market, is it as wild as, uh, as everything else out there? <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. It's self-storage is kind of the, the tale of two worlds here. Um, on the retail side, if you go through brokers, yeah, it's extremely competitive. You, you're seeing super low compressed cap rates when you're making offers. But if you're on the uh, off-market side, it's actually really great. I'm typically on our off-market deals. We're the only ones negotiating um, at the table. There's no other buyers. Now, that being said, yes, there's much 
less competition on a numbers basis, right? Just physical investors looking for deals compared to maybe residential multifamily. But there's also just a ton less um, inventory, right? In the United States, there's roughly 72,000 self-storage facilities across all 50 states, as opposed to, you know, if you go the single family route, you can have like a million homes in uh, an MSA if it's a large MSA. Easily. Uh, yeah. Right. So as a percentage, I think it's, you know, it's around the same, but it's a much higher barrier to entry. So, you know, as opposed to single family home that you can get away with putting a hundred bucks down earnest money or a thousand bucks down earnest money. For myself, storage deals, the minimum I've ever put down on earnest money was like 25,000. And then for the larger deals that are in the, you know, tens of millions, we're putting down like $150,000 just in earnest money. So which if you compare to multifamily these days, really isn't that bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just coming from the single family side, that's, you know, that's a big jump for people to get in to. But the nice thing about storage is all those things that you learned in your single family and multifamily investing careers can apply to self-storage. So you can wholesale them, you can fix and flip them, you can buy and hold them, you can do seller finance and terms on them. You know, it's just the same thing. Uh, it's just the assets a little bit different. What's your what's your market selection criteria look like? Is it similar to just picking a single or multifamily, looking for the tra- traditional, you know, job growth, population growth, income growth, that that kind of stuff, or is it different for self storage? Yeah, so it, it it depends. You know, our our outfit's a little bit more sophisticated now, so we see opportunities all over the place. So in general, all those things you describe, job growth, population growth, that's good for our long term buy and holds, right? Things that we're going to hold for fifteen plus years. But I'm not afraid to do a fix and flip and capture a bunch of equity in a market that may be negative, right? Not good job growth, maybe super rural, maybe it's losing people. If I can walk into a property that's, say, 40% occupied and buy it, turn it around in 12 months, get it up to 90% occupancy, and then go sell it for double what I bought it, even at fire sale prices through a broker. Um, So we'll, we'll go into those tougher markets if we see the ability to, you know, air quote, fix and flip a deal and just pull the equity out and and keep going. But typically on the buy and hold deals, what you said is what we're looking for, hmm. um, especially for the ground up developments. So to give you kind of a, a, a sense of scale on the buy and hold properties that we're buying from these mom and pop investors, I'm typically falling anywhere between the 800 to $1.5 million purchase price range. On ground up developments, I'm starting at like $10 million wow. uh, and, that, and that budget can go all the way up to like 15 to $20 million. So site selection is extremely important. It's much, much more due diligence on that side as opposed to buying an existing cash flowing asset. Now, are you syndicating these or JVing or does it depend on the size of the deal like anything else or... Yeah. So it depends on the size of the deal. Um, when I first got involved in self-storage, I just want to make sure that my numbers were good. So I actually started by wholesaling storage first, because if a buyer was willing to, if a sophisticated buyer was willing to pay more than I did, then I must be doing something right on the due diligence. And then we started buying our own without bringing investor capital in just to go through an entire cycle to say, hey, is this thing working? Is this, are the projections that we put in here and the assumptions, are they correct? And then as we started um, building up our portfolio, then we started to do a lot of syndication, especially for the larger deals. So in general, nowadays, 
if it's a property that's, you know, below a million, million and a half, uh, we could typically take it down ourselves. And what we'll do is we'll take down maybe three to seven of those ourselves. And then we will refinance into more of a longer term fixed rate debt option that's non-recourse and then uh, bring in investors at that point. Because, you know, you have investors that are looking for different things. Some investors are looking for cash flow. Some investors are looking for equity growth. Some investors are investing in their IRA or their, you know, self-directed 401k where others are using free cash. So the tax implications are different. So it really just depends on a deal by deal basis. But anything that's large, um, we're usually going to syndicate right out the bat. So all of our ground up developments are syndicated. All of our conversion projects are syndicated. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that's that's a lot of carryover, like you said, multifamily. So right. let's get kicked off. You're, you're rattling off a number of reasons why you love self-storage so much. What are your top three? And what would you share if you could only pick three out of the many? Long <laughs> <you have? laughs> well, I, I got a presentation lined up that's got the top nine reasons why. But if I had to pick three here, um, I'm going to say number one, it's got the highest uh, average annual return compared to any other real estate asset class uh, over the last 40 years of data. And if I jump into that one, you see that, let's say in 1990, you put $100,000 into one of these various you know, investments. If you put that money into the S&P 500, you'd have a rough average annual return of around 8%. If you put it into multifamily, um, you'd have an, a rough average annual return of about 13%, where um, that 100,000 would turn into about $1.7 million after 30 years. If you put it into self-storage, self-storage has an average annual return of around 17 to 18%. So that 4% between multifamily and self-storage doesn't seem like a lot, but you got to realize that 4% is compounding over 30 years. So that 17% on that $100,000 invested back in 1990 today would be worth about $4.1 million. So over twice the return that you would have gotten investing in multi multifamily. So a lot of people say, okay, wow, that's amazing. That must mean, you know, if it's got higher returns, that must mean it has higher risk. And when you look at the last 30 years of data, you find that it's actually not the case. It's the opposite. So let's look at the last two major, um, you know, recessions that we've gone through. So the 2007 to 2009 global financial crisis, during that period of time, the S&P lost 22%. Multifamily lost about 7% from a REIT level, real estate investment trust level. So these are the big corporate guys. I know a lot of guys from the wholesaling side of my business that they lost everything. I mean, they truly had to start from scratch. The self-storage industry on average has dropped about 3% during that time, 2007 to 2009. And actually, again, that's big, clunky, slow-moving REITs. Um, I actually know a lot of investors that they doubled their net worth during those times because what people don't realize is that storage is an asset that lends itself to people in transition. So not only when you're upsizing and you're buying a bunch of stuff because the economy is good or you're, you know, you got a new job, so you're moving and you're using storage, but also on the, on the way down as well. So when there's recessions um, and you're forced to downsize, a lot of people will be using storage and people say, oh, well, why don't you just sell your stuff or throw it away? But the question I always ask people, and I'm assuming a lot of your listeners have children is, if you were forced to downsize to half the size you had, 
and you have that bin of, you know, you colored pencil drawings that your, your children drew for you when they were two or three years old. Would you throw those away because you didn't have the room or would you put them in storage or somehow find a way to store those? Like I'm 30 years old and my father still has literally two giant bins of little stick figure drawings that I made when I was two or three years old and he will not get rid of them. Right. So it, during that time, um, I knew a lot of investors that consolidated and they pay off a lot of debt, but they also started acquiring as well because there's really good deals on the streets. Now let's fast forward to the pandemic. So the pandemic for me personally was, was really good for the, the self-storage business. Our uh, average street rates actually went up. Our delinquency levels stayed the same or went down. And that was one that was pretty, I guess, not alarming, but I, I didn't realize it to that effect that it would take place. And what we realized when we started talking to all of our, you know, our customers were saying, hey, you know, if you need help, let us know. Just keep the communication lines open. And what a lot of people were opting to do is to downsize. So go from like a $3,000 a month mortgage to a $1,500 a month mortgage. But then at the same time, um, they were opting to use storage because on a per square foot basis, it was much cheaper for them. So they can go out and pay for a 10 by 10 or a hundred square foot closet or storage unit. That's maybe 80, 90 bucks a month. That was a lot easier to swallow than, you know, double your mortgage up, which is $1,500 extra cost per month. Okay. Yeah. makes sense. So we covered the returns piece. We've covered the I guess, lower risk profile. Right. How about a third? What stands out to you? I'd have to say it's the leverage that's offered to us. It's absolutely fantastic. It beats anything I've seen in the multifamily or single family space by quite a bit, at least for the scaling level, right? Nothing's ever going to beat your 30-year fixed single family home loan, but you can only get to about seven. The max amount is 10. I used to be a lender myself. But truly, once you get to property six or seven, the due diligence items that are required from you as a borrower get pretty onerous and does not not long, you know, no longer makes you know as much sense. So, for example, I've had um, facilities that I have bought with ten percent down. I went. The nice thing about self storage is not only is it a real estate asset, it's also considered a business. So now you you qualify for SBA loans, small business administration loans. And in the residential world, the equivalent of an SBA loan would be like your FHA loan, right? It's super heavy doc. You need a bunch of tax returns. They're going to look at literally everything in your world. But then you can get into a million dollar property with 10% down at purchase, wow. right? 10%, 100,000 bucks. Um, really great. And then those loans are typically amortized over 25 or 30 years, depending on how you structure them. Um, on the more advanced side of the loan world, this is when you start going into the CMBS loans, the commercial mortgage-backed security loans, which are also available for multifamily. But because the way that self-storage has been historically recession resilient, um, the pricing on those loans are, are much lower. So for example, I just got a pricing done from Morgan Stanley. Um, we had it was a four property portfolio that we were refinancing into. It was a 10 year fixed term um, at 4% interest 
on a 30 year amortization schedule and it's non-recourse. So I personally do not have to sign for the loan. You could, it's almost impossible to get that type of leverage on single family homes and on multifamily. It's, it's typically extremely difficult, at least at the lever, the leverage rates that we're achieving at, which is 75 to 80% loan to value. We can cash out as much as we want, as long as it stays under that loan to value ratio and the, the lenders don't ask any questions about what we're using the cash for. Yeah, it's interesting to compare it to multifamily because, for, you know, to rewind, rewind six months or 12 months ago when COVID is really in full swing and, I mean, reserve requirements were going way up. Rates were, rates were still fairly low, but the, the loan to value ratios were much, much worse. They're more stringent than they were, but they're, they're kind of loosening up. But now this COVID thing's ramping back up again. I'm curious to see will that sustain or where it will go. But, you know, it's an interesting point you make for sure. Yeah. And some of the best term sheets we got on, let's say like very, you know, the equivalent of what we would call a high risk deal in the middle of COVID where it was blowing us away. Um, so for example, I, I got a term sheet for uh, nine, I'm sorry, uh, an $11.7 million ground of development in June of 2020. So right in the middle of COVID, you know, really scaring everybody. Um, we got an 80% loan to cost loan on a ground up development at 4% interest. Um, it was absolutely fantastic. And wow. then we got, I think three years of interest only payments on top of that. So in times of trouble or economic uncertainty, the banks, they need to restructure their balance sheets to put less risk on their books. So one of the easiest ways they can do that is either lower leverage on some of the riskier assets like single family or multifamily, or they can shift more loans to things that are less risky, like self-storage. And to do that, they have to offer really aggressive terms. So for example, that Morgan Stanley loan I was telling you about, there's no seasoning requirement whatsoever. The day I get to stabilization, I can go off of T1 financials, literally one month of financials, and that's wow. where they'll establish my value. Whereas with, at least right now, multifamily, you know, you need six, 12 months of seasoning, in some cases, 18 months of seasoning, depending on where you are, or how much value add you had to do on the asset. Wow, that's wild. And that's unheard of. So what's the, I mean, you, you kind of rattled off some really compelling arguments to invest. What's, what's the biggest pitfall in your perspective? It doesn't have to be unique to, to self-storage, but what's the biggest drawback? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, there's three main issues, and this is not really one with storage in general, but in real estate as, a, as an asset as a whole, so the first is compressed cap rates, right? So you have a lot of big firms, hedge funds, Blackstone, these types of guys coming into the space and they're, they're chasing these attractive alternative assets that produce a much higher yield. So because of that, they're able to come into, um, come into markets and outbid all the competition. So like I said before, you know, when you go on the broker route, if you go retail for self-storage, I mean, you're, you're really paying to win these bids, I mean, you're, you're in the five, 6% cap rate range, just like you see in multifamily. So one way to mitigate against that is to go off market, first of all, as opposed to going retail, you know, find a good wholesaler that can find your deals or do direct to seller marketing yourself. Um, and then the second way is to never buy stabilized assets, just buy all value add deals where you are the one forcing the equity. The second piece that is a risk that needs to be mitigated is oversaturation. So because of these large REITs and these large hedge funds, they have a much longer investment um, 
investment timeline. They're willing to buy an asset today that doesn't make sense because they're in it for 30 or 40 years. That's how they're approaching it. Whereas a, as me, as an individual investor, you know, I'm typically looking at horizons of five, five to seven years on our medium term deals. And the longest we'll really go on projections will be 10 to 15 years on our buy and hold options. So because of that, these larger companies can come into markets that technically I would consider being oversaturated and they can throw up units just to kind of stake a, a flag in the ground in that market. In addition to that, construction costs and self-storage are relatively cheaper than anywhere else. Um, now I know construction materials have gone up across the board for all bit. industries, a bit. but I mean, I'll give you an example in the Midwest out here for me to put up a, you know, a nice class, a multifamily uh, development, I'm spending $300 a square foot, maybe 350 on, on self-storage. I just got quoted out on a deal that we're doing in the next month and a half, you know, so super high construction cost environment. I'm still underneath the hundred dollars a square foot range, right? So much, much cheaper. And you got to think of why, right? Self-storage, all it really is, is concrete pads, concrete tilt-up walls, steel walls and steel roof or a concrete roof, depending on the, the size of the asset you're building. I don't have to deal with a lot of plumbing, HVAC, electrical, you know, all the MEP that you would on a multifamily deal that would push up costs. So because of that, these REITs are coming into the markets and they're trying to stake their flag in the ground um, because they know eventually it'll make sense in a market that is growing. So one way to mitigate against oversaturation is, is really stressing the importance on underwriting and then feasibility studies. So for us, not only do we have our internal underwriting, but then the lender will also underwrite for us. And then in addition to that, we'll go pay a third party upfront to do a feasibility study on the market itself. And that is a third party that has no, you know, no financial tie to the deal. And they basically check us in case we have rosy colored glasses. So that's the second risk that you really have to mitigate. The third one is the competition, the REIT competition, right? These real estate investment trusts, they have different tax treatments. They have virtually unlimited capital that they need to deploy, especially now. So during, during COVID, a lot of these REITs stopped buying or they put all their deals on hold and they are sitting on so much physical cash that to them, as long as they can beat inflation, it makes sense to invest in an asset because they have so much cash that's being eroded by the massive government spending that's going on right now, the likes of which we've never seen before on a dollar cost basis. So one of the solutions that we have is to go where the REITs don't like to play, unless you're going to do ground up development and build for them. And they, they, they're basically your exit. So for us is we avoid primary markets. Like I would never invest in downtown Chicago because I'm competing against these REITs that can pay way more than me. Instead, what I'm going to do is go to secondary and tertiary markets. This is where I can get really good cash flow. I have less risk. I don't have to deal with, um, you know, these REITs and their, their very aggressive strategies. So the, those are the three things that I think are, are some of the, the things that need to be mitigated in, in the self-storage world is that compressed cap rates, the, um, the REIT competition, and then the oversaturation. Now, that's a great summary. I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of why you, why you love it so much and compelling arguments as to how to mitigate risk. So yeah. people are listening. They like what they hear. How do they get in touch with you for next steps? Tell us about your company. 
Yeah. So very easy to get a hold of me. Um, I, up until recently, I started, I was giving my cell phone away on <laughs> these podcasts. Dangerous, dangerous. Yeah. So easy, easiest way to get a hold of us is go to our website. So the umbrella company is Titan Wealth Group. So you can go to titanwealthgroup.com. If you want to uh, hit us up directly on our storage side of the business, you can go to impactselfstorage.com or impactstoragefund.com. Um, and then that's the easiest way to reach out. You can also send me an email. So uh, you can get a hold of me at Fernando at impactselfstorage.com or info at titanwealthgroup.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, man. It's great. Yeah. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.